You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, yours truly, perhaps also maybe not your cup of tea, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, which also might be yours truly, your cup of tea, and it also might not be. An interesting thing to think about is what it is that we like and what it is that we dislike. And when I say we, I mean all of us together. I mean the aggregate, the sum total, or at least a significant percentage of we like, not we as individuals. We individually might like an endless number of different things. We might dislike an endless combination of other things compared to the things that we like. Our likes and our dislikes can take any number of combinations for all kinds of factors, for all kinds of reasons. But when we, when a group of us together like something and dislike something, we refer to that as being popularity. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode. I want to talk about popularity contests more specifically. Now, an interesting thing as I was thinking about this, as I was pondering it, is that last night, and this is what sparked it, this is what spurred this thought. Last night, we men in the preaching and teaching group at Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado. We got together and four of us, including myself, preached sermons that we had prepared. And after each one of us would go up and from the pulpit deliver the 10 to 15 minute message that we had prepared, we would come back down, take our seat again, and then get feedback. And The whole idea here is you get feedback on what's working, what's not working, what is perhaps really, really great, really effective from a form and substance standpoint, and also what could be better. Hey, if you wanted to take this to the next level, this is what I would recommend you tweak. This is what I would recommend you change. Let's talk about why you do this certain thing there's a nervous habit you have, or it's just some unconscious attitude or what have you. And each of us have these things. We all do. It is practice and intentionality that helps us to take control of those things, of those nervous tics or those subtle ways that we can undermine what it is that we're trying to communicate to the world around us. And you don't want to get too good, right? You don't want to have such a practiced error in your communication that people think you're disingenuous or you're inauthentic. You don't want that. You want to be intentional, but also not forced. Because authenticity, particularly in this day and age, is highly valued. It's highly valued above most things, whether it should be or not, if you're not 
perceived as authentic, people tune you out. People don't want to hear what it is that you have to say. And maybe that's been all times, all places throughout human history. Maybe that is just always a factor. But I think at least in our particular case, in our context, as Americans living in the 21st century, it has a lot to do with postmodernism. It has a lot to do with elevating lived experience above the more traditional notion that there is such a thing as transcendent truth that is knowable, that is apprehendable, that is communicable. I can know the truth and the truth can set me free. That's what I believe as a Christian. If you're a Christian who reads their Bible, who listens to the words of Jesus, who remembers them, who abides in them, you believe that too. But the postmodern secular world, the humanistic world, the post-truth world around us rejects that. And what do they have to compare? What is their next best thing? It is lived experience. A continuation of thought and philosophy from Descartes to the present holds that I think, therefore I am. And I'm interested, Bobby McPherson over at the Reformed Conservative, friend of mine, longtime friend, he tells me he disagrees with my take on Descartes, which is fine. I could be wrong. He's much more of a student of philosophy than I am. He's sat under Roger Scruton, and he knows his stuff far better than I can pretend to. And I, I admire that, and I defer. I'm not sure why he disagrees with my uh, perspective on Descartes. I would be interested to have him on sometime, perhaps. I could have him on the Garrett Ashley Mullet show. We could talk about it. But suffice to say, I hold that Descartes' statement, his assertion, that I think, therefore I am, after all of this radical doubt, doubting everything, questioning everything, deconstructing everything, that really did set us on the path to some extent, or at least it contributed greatly, and that's why we remember it. That's why we remember this phrase. It wasn't always held that I think, therefore I am is the basis for the locus of, the center of our understanding of the world around us. And yet, when you say something like that, when you say, I think, therefore I am, and people are remembering it hundreds of years later, and they see that as a pivotal moment in the development of Western philosophy, it's worth asking why. Why was that a marked shift? Why was that a pivot? And what was it a pivot from? And what was it a pivot to? You don't get an instantaneous leap from, I think, therefore I am, to the present, but you do have the beginnings of a traversing to get to the point where we're at right now, where lived experience is more highly valued than transcendent truth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that lived experience is of no value. Of course, lived experience is of value. And Ideally, our interpretation of our lived experience coincides with reality as it is. We are sane, we are knowledgeable, we have studied to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. 
And when we talk about our lived experience, we speak about it, we communicate it in a way that is faithful to God's word as special revelation, that's faithful to the laws of the universe and reality as it is, or if you will, general revelation. But of course, lived experience requires some kind of standard of truth in order for us to evaluate it. And if someone makes a habit of evaluating, of critiquing, of assessing lived experience, or the communication of lived experience, or attitudes about lived experience, in our day and age, they very much run the risk of becoming unpopular in a hurry. Someone says, well, you just don't know what it's like to be XYZ in my situation. You've never walked a mile in my shoes, therefore you can't possibly dispute my interpretation of my experiences, of my interactions, of my personal life. You just don't understand. You don't understand what it's like. Well, wait a second, though. If I can't understand what it's like, then why are you talking? Why, why are you explaining to me these things that have happened to you as if I could understand? What you're looking for is not understanding. What you're looking for is affirmation. You're looking for me to tell you that everything you think and feel and do and say is entirely correct, or it's at least as correct as anything else. There's nothing wrong with it. You are wonderful. You're very special. Good job. Continue on. What you want is license. You want license to continue on thinking and feeling and doing and saying whatever it is that pops into your head in a random fashion. Antinomianism is a term which might be helpful to insert here and to define where we are anti-law. We are lawless. And even though grace is very, very important, we're warned sternly in the New Testament to not live in such a way that we abuse grace. We don't sin that grace might abound all the more, for instance. We don't embrace wickedness and folly because, well, there's grace for that. But again, all of these things, all of these ways of relating, all of these ways of having feedback for the people around us, when they start telling us about their lived experience, about what they're going through, about what they want to do, what they're excited about, what they're really upset about. All of these ways of relating are not popular right now. These are not popular ways to interact, to conduct oneself, <clears throat> if you want to keep to yourself, or to speak into someone else's circumstance, into someone else's life. And so what will you find when you do it anyways, because we're called to in some measure. Well, for one, you'll find that sometimes it's hard to draw a distinction between speaking truth, providing things honest in the sight of all men, on the one hand, and on the other hand, not casting your pearls before swine, not giving to dogs what is holy. So someone tells you about their licentious lifestyle, their libertine lifestyle. They're bragging about how much fun they had this past weekend breaking commandments and being wild. And you have a choice. You come into work, and this is the story that's greeting you. It's a braggadocious tale of wickedness and woe. And they're still excited about it. They're still happy about it. They're still reveling and glorying in their shame. And so then 
you have a choice. You say, hey, you know what? I really think there's some repentance that's in order here. I think you need to repent. Come to Jesus. Tread lightly. When we frame the question that way, it's easy to see in a hurry that you will quickly become unpopular. You might get reported to HR. You might lose your job. You might have a hard time finding another job. And as things progress, it may be the case in five to 10 years, depending on how the Lord sovereignly allows things to unfold, permits things to develop. But at current trajectory, in five to 10 years, we may look back on right now and the thought of just losing your job and having to find a new job and think, boy, those were the days. Remember when, remember when you only might lose your job for sharing the gospel with somebody at work who needed to hear it. Remember those days? Uh, Now we lose our lives. Now you can be physically assaulted. Now you can be murdered. Now you can be arrested. Now you can be fined or you can be imprisoned because you've committed a violent act as it is increasingly thought. For you to critique someone else's lived experience, to tell them, hey, you know what? I'm seeing some things that I'm really concerned about in your life. For you to say that is seen as an assault on that person's person. Their lived experience is not distinguished from, separated out from their person. And so let's take some girl who is confused because of the things she's seeing on the screen, hearing on the radio, hearing from her friends, from her family. She's confused. And she thinks that she's a girl who likes girls. And you say, sweetie, here's what's written. Here's what God's word says. God loves you. And this thing that you are exploring or you're confused about or you're embracing is going to kill you. You're going to have to turn away from this at some point and trust in Jesus and come to Jesus. It might as well be now. I I care about you. I don't want to see this wreck your life. Now you say that and the popular attitude, which my sons have run into as they're interacting with junior high girls that they know, the popular thing to say and to conclude is that you bigot, you ignorant, arrogant Christian, you are the reason why LGBTQ persons kill themselves, which is another way of saying you actually are killing LGBTQ persons to say things like that, to say that this is not good, healthy, righteous, normal, sane. You're going to hurt this girl's feelings. You're going to hurt that boy's feelings. They're going to get depressed. They're going to harm themselves, perhaps even fatally. And their blood will be on your hands. Well, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from that into retaliatory action, violent retaliation for merely having called for repentance, for merely sharing the gospel and saying, contextually, the gospel includes confession, repentance, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you to say that, there's something that needs to be repented of, 
that your sin separates you from a holy, righteous, good God, for you to say that is murder. You're murdering their spirit. That's the popular sentiment, and it's becoming more popular to develop that idea further. And this is not a new idea. Historically, the church has been violently persecuted and driven underground for reasons such as this. So here's what I propose. Here's what I suggest is believing as so many of us do, and I have private conversations with fellow Christians who say these things that I'm saying, and they put they, they finish the sentence or they begin the sentence and I finish it because we're all thinking the same thing. We're all thinking unless something miraculous happens, barring divine intervention to bring revival in this country, Christians are going to be violently persecuted as they historically have been in all times and places at some point or another in the near future. This fresh crop of young people coming up through the ranks, growing up, are going to do it. That is what comes of sowing the wind is that you reap the whirlwind at a certain point. You give your children over to anti-Christian folks, to an anti-Christian school system. That anti-Christian school system, populated with anti-Christian folks, teaches your children to be anti-Christian. And before you know it, lickety-split, those children grow up into adults who are anti-Christian. And when it reaches a certain critical mass, the anti-Christian sentiment translates into persecution of Christians. Not content to merely tune you out, to bar you from the public discourse, to keep you out of public office, to keep you out of boardrooms and management positions and companies, to boycott your business. Nope, not content to do only those things, particularly if you still end up being successful anyways. You still have, end up having influence anyways, despite their best efforts at undermining you. At a certain point, all those other indirect measures fail because God is blessing his people and they're living in accordance with truth. And then the only thing for it, for those absolutely determined and hell-bent to counteract the Christian influence in society is to murder. And we're not talking spirit murder. We're talking murder, murder. And yet Jesus says, do not fear man who can only kill the body then has nothing more he can do to you. So what I propose is believing that these things are coming down the pike. We do well to steel ourselves, to put steel in our spines and be sure of on what our identity is predicated where should we get our sense of confidence about who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, where we're going? Where should we get our confidence? Well, we should get it in God's word, for one, from God's spirit. If we are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells and resides in us as a comforter, as a guide, as a convictor. We should get our confidence from being in fellowship with other Christians who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, who study God's word, who remind us of these things. That's the purpose of not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together as some do. And then when, not if, when persecution comes, you're able to persevere. 
Jesus says at one point that whoever hears his words and doesn't live according to them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The winds came, the storm came, rains beat against the house, the winds blew against the house, and it crashed and it fell. It was a mighty crash because it was built on sand. The sands shift. Sand is not a stable foundation on which to build your house, the house of your life. The house is a metaphor for your life, your person, your identity. But whoever hears these words of Jesus and lives by them is like a wise man. And you think about all of these TV shows in which you can see, let's take Chip and Joanna Gaines, for instance. Chip and Joanna Gaines have this great show. Husband and wife team, I think they're fantastic. I think they're adorable and sweet, and I'm sure there's more about them that I don't know, and somebody's going to pull out some scandalous thing. I don't need to hear about the scandals, in my opinion. Everybody's got things that they're not proud of, but I just I know as soon as I mention Chip and Joanna Gaines, somebody's going to say, oh, well, do you know that XYZ? Okay, whatever. From what I see, they seem like sweet people. I'm not basing my Christianity off of them, but they seem like they seem like wholesome, sweet, genuine people. And so here they are. They've got a show, and they've got a business, and they fix up houses for people, and they seem to really genuinely love one another and pour themselves into caring for the people they're working for. They seem to genuinely treat those people in a holistic fashion and try to build a house around, a home around those people, mind, body, and heart and soul. And you think about being able to do that skillfully, being able to do that in a way that's going to be durable, using the right materials, putting them together in a way that's going to last in a skillful way in an intentional way, not haphazardly, not carelessly, not flippantly, but you're building up this person. You're edifying this person's life in some fashion. And we love watching shows like that. Otherwise, why are there so many shows like that? All I can gather is that the reason why that's popular, a show like Fixer Upper, and why... Christianity is increasingly unpopular is because we don't think of church. We don't think of our engagement as Christians like that to the extent that we perhaps should. And perhaps we do. And perhaps it's not a question of blaming ourselves for the world being the world, for lost, sinful, wicked people doing what lost, sinful, wicked people are going to do, saying what lost, sinful, wicked people are going to say, behaving in an ungodly way. Perhaps at a certain point, we are supposed to just say, hey, rather than blaming the church, rather than blaming ourselves, rather than us taking responsibility for the actions of the society around us, we focus on being faithful to God ourselves. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to study it diligently. I'm going to try to obey it by God's grace, not to save myself, but because I am saved in light of the salvation that I have received. 
and I'm going to abide in these things, like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when the storm is going to come. And when the storm comes, will you find that your foundation holds? Now, this could be very cliche, but I really want you to think about this. I want to think about this. Heart, soul, strength, mind. Are we loving the Lord our God with all that is in us? Not in a legalistic way, but in a robust, holistic way. I think that's a good word for it, holistic. Our entire person, all of ourselves, 100% of ourselves being poured into loving God, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Are we approaching it in a holistic way? Moving to Colorado here two years ago, actually two years ago exactly, as of today, is when this house in Greeley, Colorado, was available to move in. Two years ago today, September 6, 2019. And what is it that we found as we moved into Colorado? We found that sure enough, as we were hoping, there was better access to health care. My wife has health problems. She's had health problems for a long time. And then you find out, okay, we get genetic testing. You've got a mutation. In fact, you've got a mutation in two key genes in this one regard. Nobody in eastern Montana was checking for that. The doctors that she went to, nobody was checking for that. It was on nobody's radar. It was only when we started coming to doctors in Colorado who were more holistic that we found out, hey, wait a second, the reason why you have all these symptoms, which seem like they shouldn't be related to one another at all. The only reason you have all these symptoms is because this mutation affects your metabolism. It affects your body's ability to digest certain things effectively that your body needs to digest. And because your body's not digesting that thing that it needs to digest, certain symptoms are manifesting themselves. Certain systems are not functioning the way that they ought to. Holistic medicine is going to look at your genetics, if that's what it takes, your diet, if that's what it takes, your lifestyle. How much rest are you getting? Are you exercising? Are you eating a balanced diet? Do you have too much stress in your life? Are you approaching things in a way that is sustainable, or are you approaching things in a way that is going to have you in an early grave and very unwell and miserable in the meantime? Jesus being the great physician, God having created us, knowing the number of the hairs on our heads, having given us, as was talked about last night, having given us Individual, unique fingerprints. No two the same. No two sets of fingerprints are identical. Billions and billions and billions of people, we all have individual, unique fingerprints. And so God gives us these unique fingerprints. He knows the number of hairs on our head. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And God wants us to be intentional in the way that we live this life that he has created for us. He wants us to love him he wants us to love one another because in part, or this, is, this is part of the reason why he wants us to love one another, because 
we're not the only one created in God's image. That man and that woman and those children, they're also created in God's image. God requires that as such, we treat them with dignity, with respect, out of reverence for him. Because his stamp, his image, his likeness is on them. And he created them for a purpose as well. And so there's this endlessly beautiful, complicated, glorious tapestry that the creator of the universe is weaving, has woven, will continue to weave, in which these very, very different, very unique people in circumstances which can seem very similar, but are always different because the context of the timeline progressing makes each situation, each combination of unique persons, places, things different, unique. God is getting glory for himself from our being faithful, from our loving him and loving one another faithfully by his grace. God gives us his word to inform how to do that. How do we love one another? How do we love God? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now again, to stress, to emphasize, this isn't talking about earning salvation. This isn't talking about us being good enough. And then God saying, via St. Peter at the pearly gates, yep, he can come in like a bouncer at a nightclub. Are you cool enough? Are you good looking enough? Are you well-dressed enough? Are you wealthy enough? Are you popular enough to be let in? I want to read for you a little bit of the Wikipedia article for popularity. And I think this could be really interesting. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can check it out. In sociology, popularity is how much a person, idea, place, item, or other concept is either liked or accorded status by other people. Liking can be due to reciprocal liking, interpersonal attraction, and similar factors. Social status can be due to dominance, superiority, and similar factors. For example, a kind person may be considered likable and therefore more popular than another person, and a wealthy person may be considered superior and therefore more popular than another person. There are two primary types of interpersonal popularity, perceived and sociometric. Perceived popularity is measured by asking people who the most popular or socially important people in their social group are. Sociometric popularity is measured by objectively measuring the number of connections a person has to others in the group. A person can have high perceived popularity without having high sociometric popularity and vice versa. Now we can think, in other words, we can think that someone is popular without them actually being quite so popular. Turns out they're really not that well liked. Skipping down a little bit, some interesting history here. It says the term popularity is borrowed from the Latin term popularis, which originally meant common. The current definition of the word popular, the, quote, fact or condition of being well-liked by the people, end quote, was first seen in 1601. While popularity is a trait often ascribed to an individual, 
It is an inherently social phenomenon and thus can only be understood in the context of groups of people. Popularity is a collective perception and individuals report the consensus of a group's feelings towards an individual or object when rating popularity. It takes a group of people to like something. So the more that people advocate for something or claim that someone is best liked, the more attention it will get and the more popular it will be deemed. Notwithstanding the above, popularity as a concept can be applied, assigned, or directed towards objects such as songs, movies, websites, activities, soaps, foods, etc. So pretty much anything. Together, these objects collectively make up popular culture or the consensus of mainstream preferences in society. In essence, anything, human or non-human, can be deemed popular. I want to propose to you that as Christians, we're going to have a different view of popularity than the world. That just has to be the case. It has to be the case that we're not afraid of losing popularity the same way that the world is. The world is terrified, is controlled and gripped by fear of not being liked. And yet, in order to follow Christ, we have to take up our cross. And in taking up our cross, we embrace the fact that we may not be well-liked by the mob shouting, crucify him. We may not be well-liked by the religious council, which gathers together and says, didn't we strictly prohibit, prohibit, forbid you from preaching and teaching in Jesus' name? The civil magistrate may also arrest us and have us beheaded on trumped-up charges. Like Nero, rumor had it, ordering fire be set to Rome so that he could build back better. And then him blaming Christians. The Christians started the fire, supposedly. Of course not. But supposedly, he blamed the Christians to take attention off, to take the heat off of rumors that he had actually started the fires. That initiated the first persecution, official persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. I think if we look at our current circumstance, we can very easily see that same thing happening again. You get major periodicals decrying whiteness, and then the more that you drill down on the definition of whiteness, the more you see that what's really being objected to is Judeo-Christian values, so-called. And depending on how you want to define Judeo-Christian values, you could just say the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. The people who live and organize themselves, organize their communities around what God says in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. Those folks have got to go. They're going to have to either give up on their ideas or be purged from society. And then you get COVID. And for all we know, COVID is Emperor Nero setting fire to Rome because he wants to build it back better. He wants to put some solar panels on the Colosseum. He wants to redo the electrical he wants to replace everybody's cars with Teslas. No more Fords for you. No more Chevys. No more Dodges. You're all going to be driving Teslas. 
oh, wait, what? You guys are upset? You you maybe got wind of my scheme? The fact that maybe this was intentionally set? This fire was intentionally set to burn half the city so that I could build it back according to my imagination, according to my judgment, to glorify myself? No, 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 no. It's not me. It's the Christians. It's those pesky Christians. Arrest them, seize their property, throw them to lions, burn them alive, behead them, throw them in prison. And that's what happened. That is what happened historically. And to be honest with you, and this is not a limb I'm going out on that's going to break under me, but it would not shock me, given history and human nature and what God's word says, it would not shock me if I were to learn that COVID was intentionally released so that climate change, the economy, everything could go along the lines of certain people, certain people in China, certain people in Europe, certain people in America, who like Nero, they think themselves these great, fantastic, genius artists. They want to be more famous than Homer. They want to write something better remembered than the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they're willing to burn down half the world just for the chance to rebuild in the aftermath. And whoa, ho ho, wait a second. We're trying to push all this stuff. We're trying to push all of these restrictions. You can't travel and you can't leave your home. And you can't work. And you got to shut your business down. You got to wear masks. You got to wear two or three masks. But wait a second, I can't breathe. No, that's not fair. That's not right. I'm not going to make my child wear a mask. No, but you have to. Well, yeah, actually, all I really, really have to do, have to, have to, the only non-negotiable is that I have to obey God. And I'm not afraid of you because Jesus commands me not to be afraid of men who can only kill the body and then have nothing more they can do to you. Oh, you know what? We've got a word for that. Anti-science. You're anti-science. Because you're non-compliant. Because you're second-guessing these post-truth world claims we're making, which we didn't expect anybody to dare to question. The professionals who've invested their entire careers in getting into this boys' club are terrified of losing their license to operate, being disbarred, being kicked out of practice, being fired, having their books unpublished, having their social media accounts deleted, being pariahs. And so some of them are going to challenge us anyways, and we're going to destroy them one by one. And you common people, you common people, we're going to make you very unpopular by saying all manner of evil against you. What? You're gathering together for church because you read in God's word to not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as some do? Oh, we can't have that. By the way, just as a quick aside, Los Angeles County is going to pay John MacArthur's church $400,000, I believe is what I saw. So, how about that? But in the interim, in the interim... It might get really ugly because historically it's gotten really ugly. Jesus promises that there will be persecution. 
men will say all manner of evil against you for his namesake. They hated him. How much more so are they going to hate you? Because you don't even have the fallback of being able to say that you're blameless the way that Jesus was able to say. For better or worse, I suppose that could make them hate Jesus more or hate you more. But you can see it. You can see Christians saying, well, wait a second, this is unethical. And I'm not going to be a party to forcing my family, my friends, my coworkers, my employees to get a vaccine, which could have some very serious repercussions for their health. For all I know, it kills them. For all I know, they die. For all I know, they're infertile after this. And wouldn't that be typical? Wouldn't that be not so surprising? If the powers that be who are saying we need to have fewer people on planet Earth decided to intervene on a massive scale, everybody has to get this shot. Oh, lo and behold, only one-tenth of the number of babies that were being born before are being born now. Hmm. Less producers, less consumers, less people. But there's one problem. Well, there's lots of problems, but there's one problem in particular for the course of our discussion. Christians saying, no, I can't in good conscience subject the people around me to this. I'm going to object because if I don't object, then other people aren't going to be courageous enough to object. This is unethical, what you're trying to do. No, and I'm not afraid of you. The reason so many people are doing this is because they're so terrified of death. I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going. I know in whom I have believed. So, We do well to steal ourselves, and we do well to do what the church has historically done. Be prepared to go underground. Be prepared to meet together in secret, to evangelize covertly, to make disciples very discreetly. And don't put so much stock in what's popular. Popular culture, popular people, popular ideas. Everything should be tested by God's word. And I say that not to be a hipster about things and not to be whatever, not to be a cynic, not to be a killjoy. But I say that because that's a typical sales tactic. Let's say you're in the market for a car. You pull up to the dealership. You get out. A very savvy salesman comes up to you and says, Hey, how's it going? And he asks you some questions. He asks you some very simple questions that the answers are going to be yes to. Gets you nodding. Establishes rapport. Establishes goodwill. Yes, 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 yes. Would you like to take it for a test drive? Sure. Would you like us to run the numbers and see if maybe we could get you financing for it? Mm, Yeah, why not? Good news, sir. You're approved. Would you like to buy... Ah, yes, yes, yep, wait, what, what am I doing, right, you, you build up momentum saying yes, 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 and before you know it, before you know it, you can't stop, you can't stop saying yes, and the point is not to say no to everything, but the point is to be able to say yes when yes is the right answer. And to be able to say no when no is the right answer. And to know why. 
to know why yes is sometimes the right answer and no is sometimes the right answer. And even when you say yes or you say no, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear. But how? How is this a yes? How and why is that a no? That's all I've got. I got to run. It's Labor Day. My dad's coming over, I believe, for a cookout this afternoon to hang out. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.